Hey, Travis family, uh, I wanna invite you to open up to Jonah chapter three. We're gonna pick up where we left off uh, last week. Um, I am probably more excited about this chapter than any other chapter in the book. Um, Next week is gonna be just a complete letdown. I'm just letting you know. Uh, I'm gonna be faithful to the text, but to me, this is sort of the climax of the story in a way because we get to see Jonah walking in obedience with the Lord and how the Lord blesses and what the Lord um, ultimately does uh, in, in the hearts of the Ninevites. I wanna begin this morning by just asking this general question um, and really uh, speaking to maybe your experience uh, just in life in general. And I want you to remember for just a moment what it was like when someone gave you the opportunity for a second chance. Maybe you've been on the receiving end of that or, or maybe you've been on the opposite where you are giving someone a second chance. All of us, to some degree, have experienced a second chance within relationships, within conflict, within work, within task, or whatever that, that may be. You know, we ultimately are a people of second chances. God, in his mercy, is, is constantly giving us opportunities because of his character, being slow to anger and, and full of compassion and mercy. Um, he gives us multiple chances and multiple opportunities. I can remember times in my life where uh, either it was my parents or it was uh, bosses or maybe even there were times with Haley where I have experienced the gift of, of second chances and walking in forgiveness and then getting sort of a restart. Well, chapter three in Jonah is really the beginning of Jonah's second chance. If you'll remember just in the previous weeks, we've seen Jonah receive a word from the Lord in chapter one to go and preach to the Ninevites who were sort of his arch enemy. Uh, These were barbaric people. They were brutal in their oppression. Uh, They did not treat women and children well. Uh, It was a decadent culture. Uh, that cared really only about their, their selves and, uh, and their own well-being. Jonah was called by God to go preach. He says no. Remember, we just said that simply rebellion is just simply saying no to God. God says do this, you just say no, and then all of a sudden we have entered into a posture of rebellion. Jonah says no, finds himself at the bottom of the ship, ends up in a whale. And then we see last week sort of the spiritual state and the process that Jonah went through emotionally and spiritually to come to the place ultimately that would bring him back. And we ended uh, with perhaps one of the most poetic scriptures in all of the Bible, just moving to our hearts, moving to our core, just incredibly beautiful language where in verse 10 of chapter two, God says, And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. So here Jonah finds himself on the dry land. And then God begins to speak again in chapter three. And so look with me where the text reads as follows. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Jonah found himself in this posture of of being willing to follow God. 
And one of the first things that we notice by just way of observation beginning in the text is we see that the Lord almost gives to the word the exact same task to Jonah in chapter three that he gives in chapter one. Chapter one, it reads a little bit different where he says in verse two, arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. And he essentially says the same thing to deliver this message, this word that I'm going to give to you. And I want you to notice as Jonah rebels and he walks away in rebellion and he begins to come back, I want you to notice the place that God brings him back to. God brings Jonah back to the place where he originally said no to. You know, God has a a way of, of working with us sort of in the same way or dealing with us in the same way that we find him dealing with Jonah in this instant. Oftentimes we say no to God And we enter into a posture of rebellion. And and then at some point, somewhere along the lines, before we really experience what I would just call the joy of the Lord, before we begin to experience the fullness that comes with with walking in obedience, the, the clear conscience that comes with following God rightly, God will bring us back to the place where we said no to. And he wants us to practice this place of of obedience with him. He wants us to learn to say yes to the things that he has said yes to. Often we find ourselves just like Jonah, running from our problems, running from people, running from churches and small groups and and onto the next one, running away from conflict at our work or in our home with our spouses or with our kids and just trying to sweep things under the rug, not having really dealt with it in a biblical way, in a mature way. And often the first posture that we should have as a people of God is to enter into a place of obedience where we are practicing saying yes to the original thing that God, that we said no to God to. And so God has a way of, of bringing us back until we fully reconcile. I think there are some of you that are watching this this morning that, that maybe there's some people in your life that you ran away from that you need to reconcile with today that you need to practice a position before the Lord of saying yes to, to dealing with the conflict, to dealing with the turmoil, rather than just picking up your bags and running down the road to the next place. And so God speaks to Jonah. And this time Jonah has a different response. Verse three continues along and it says, so Jonah arose and he went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city Three days journey in breadth. Now, archaeologists will tell us that this description of it being a three-day journey, that that what seems to be intimated here is, is that this is how long it would take to walk across the city. Most scholars would contend that, that this city was, was on average uh, about a length of, of about seven and a half miles. And so it would take during Jonah's time to walk seven and a half miles through a city, uh, through all the corridors and the streets and and sort of avoiding all the obstacles. It would have taken you about three days, give or take. Now I realize that seven and a half miles isn't necessarily a large city in our understanding of what modern cities have become today. But make no mistake about it. Nineveh was an immensely large and densely populated city area. 
It was a large metropolitan place where, where people were there. They were doing commerce. They were living and existing. It had an abundance of people. But remember this, it wasn't just people. These were the people that were the enemy of God's people. These were the people that Jonah hated the most, that he despised the most, that he cared about the least. And yet these were the people far from God that Jonah was called to go and to make known to them the God of this book. Three days journey in breath. And so Jonah began to go into the city in verse four. Going a day's journey, the text says that he called out and this was his message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So I want you to imagine this scene here with me. I said last week as Jonah would have been swallowed by this great fish. And as he would have existed in the belly of this fish, he would have been covered in the gastric juices that existed in this fish. And because of the acidity levels that would have existed, we can imagine that Jonah's skin would have been bleached to a lighter color. His hair would have been a little bit lighter than, than whatever it was, his whole face. And, and if he had facial hair, he would have looked like a strange alien uh, in the midst of these people. He would have looked very different and smelled very different. Jonah wouldn't have understood the word that we use often to, to be contextual to the culture in the city that you find yourself in. In fact, Jonah would have stuck out like a sore thumb. And as he began to enter into this city with the multitudes of the people, the message that God gave him are eight words in the English, yet only five that exist in the Hebrew. And his message was this, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can you imagine the scene in Fort Worth, Texas? If God had called a Jonah who had been laying around in the belly of a fish, with bleached skin, would have looked completely abnormal, smelled, uh, clothes would have been tattered, walking through the city. And contrast this message that Jonah gives, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. This was all the message that, that God had given Jonah. This was the word of the Lord for Jonah to these people. You imagine the messages that we often hear uh, from popular television preachers, although I, I see the irony as I preach from a television set this morning. And maybe this is more of a warning to me. And the messages of, of feel good, the messages of, of your best person now, the, the pop psychology that has integrated and infiltrated the church that, that is being elevated to the neglect of the sufficiency and the authority of God's word. Can you imagine Jonah going into the city of Nineveh and, and proclaiming a message that, that there's only good news, that there's, only, there's no such thing as bad news, that God wants what's best for you. No, what Jonah does and the message that God gives Jonah to the Ninevites is in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. In 40 days, five words in the Hebrew language. This was his message that he preached as he walked up and down those city streets. But I want you to notice <coughs> verse five, where it says, and the people of Nineveh, they believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them all the way to the least. I want you to notice something in response that I think the text is drawing out for us. 
Jonah delivers this message that the word that God had given him through the word. And notice who it says the people responded to. It says that the people didn't necessarily believe Jonah, but rather they believed God. This is a reminder for preachers and teachers across the board. This is a reminder for churches. This is a reminder for the kingdom of Christianity and and what God is doing globally, that the message that we teach and we proclaim has been entrusted to us by God and it is God's message, not our own. It's God's thoughts and ideas and and how he wishes and wants us to live in a place of obedience so that we can flourish as, as human beings made in his image. God is calling his people to accurately respond and reflect the word that he has given his people so that the people cannot respond to the messenger but rather will respond to the word. It's the word that they responded to. It's the word that we need to be confronted with on a regular basis. It's this rhythm in the scripture and throughout the scripture (coughs) that's one of, of God reveals and then his people respond. It's a rhythm of, of revelation and response to that revelation. God is speaking to his people and every time he speaks, he's demanding a response from his people to respond in faith and with trust and in hope that that what he says to us is good for us and is his best for us. And the people of Nineveh, they believed God and they entered into this posture of, of mourning, not mourning necessarily over their destruction and that they would be overthrown, mourning over their apparent realization of of their wickedness, their realization that they had been trying to do things right in their own eyes and God calling them back to a place to to reveal to them, maybe for the first time, for people that that had only heard this message for the first, they believed that Jonah was sent by God in the same way that these sailors that he found himself on the ship with at the end of chapter one, that they recognized that it was Jonah's God that was punishing them. And they repented of their sins and and began to walk faithfully with God. But it goes on in verse six, and he says that that this word, this message, no prosperity gospel here. Three days journey and three in a short time in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. And it says in verse six that the word then reached the king of Nineveh. Maybe perhaps the cause of all the problems and the man who, who was initiating these reforms and, and giving these commands for, for this barbaric behavior and posture, uh, he arose, he hears the message, he arose from his throne and he removed his robe. And it says that he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. The king of one of the greatest empires, of a brutal empire, who had been victorious on the military uh, battlefield, had come to the realization, was hearing what Jonah was saying and the message he was proclaiming, and he realized the error of his ways. What we would say in the modern vernacular, uh, really within a New Testament perspective, and even our understanding, he began to repent of his ways and to turn from evil to good. 
And it says in verse seven that he issues a proclamation and he published this proclamation throughout Nineveh. And, and it says this, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, let them taste, not taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered rather with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. You ever been around a group of cows that are hungry or thirsty? I've been in some of those environments before in, in pastures where the farmer goes and, and he goes to feed his cows. And he's got the feed in the back of his truck and the cows see that. And, and this, this hundred group of, of animals begin to follow the farmer in the truck as he begins to feed. And, and what you begin to, to notice in those times is I remember uh, and seeing that and experiencing that, how loud the cows get. They begin to move. As they are hungry and as they are thirsty, they, they are communicating not just to one another in their own way, but, but their, their verbal skills as best they have it. When they begin to move, uh, it is often because they are hungry and they are thirsty. And so you can imagine this scene that exists before Jonah. The king of, of Nineveh is, is covered in sackcloth, sitting in ashes, repenting of his sins. He issues this decree where no one can eat or drink, even the animals of the field. And so you've got this weeping and wailing that exists within the human population. But then you have the animals who are affected by this posture of repentance and, and water and food is being withheld. And so you've got these tears of agony and, and repentance going on before the people. And you've got these cows that are, that are making these noises because they're hungry and thirsty as well, all of this to set this scene that the entire culture had been infiltrated by the gospel and by the understanding, by the word of the Lord as had been revealed. And let everyone in verse eight, let him turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows in verse nine, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now there's a lot of debate and conversation throughout history on whether or not this phrase, God may turn and relent. There's a, a translation uh, with my, my King James friends that, that render this text. And it, and it says literally that God may turn and he may not relent, but rather the translation wrongly uses the word repent. That God may turn and he may repent from his fierce anger. And the insinuation that's there is really an attack and an affront on the character and the immutability of God. You see, we hold to the truth that God is immutable. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. God doesn't lack anything. He doesn't make a mistake. He doesn't evolve into something. He, he's never wrong. He, he is perfect in all of his ways. Yet you can see the issue that, that this begins to bring up if we begin to translate that verse relents and we begin to say that it's God repenting of his desire or the notion that he's going to issue judgment on the Ninevites, that he was wrong or perhaps 
that he couldn't know or he couldn't see the future. He was what scholars would, would call an, an open theist. He doesn't know the future. He allows it to happen and, and he orchestrates and he moves things at times, but, but ultimately not even God knows what the future holds. There are people who, who hold to that truth. And I wanna offer a solution that I, that I believe exists here to help our understanding. The, the NIV and the ESV and, and many other translations get this right. But to help us understand this, we, we sort of gotta go a little bit deeper to understand the nuances in the words. And, and in the Hebrew, there's actually two different words, two very different words that are used to describe the change of heart in God versus the change of heart in the Ninevites. You see, when, when he says that the king issues this edict in verse eight, and he says, let everyone turn from his evil way. This word turn there in the Hebrew there uh, is, is simply just meaning to turn from evil ways to good. But yet, when he gets to the place in verse nine where he says that God may turn and relent, he changes the Hebrew word there and he uses the word nakam. N-A-C-H-A-M phonetically is how you would write it out. And what this means is, is it implies this, this rather inward suffering that, that exists. And in other words, because he uses a, a variance of that word that's not meant to be translated out as repent, but rather to relent, that I think an even better way to render it would simply be to say that who knows, God may be moved to pity because the people are responding to his judgment. Now I wanna make a very important note about the character of God that we see not just in Jonah, but we see elsewhere throughout scripture. You see, often we see if my left hand represents the judgment of God and God is gonna give his judgment on his people. We know God is ready to punish his sin and, and God brings plagues and, and pandemics throughout scripture, rightfully so that we can identify as a, as a form of judgment. But more often than not, at the same time that he brings judgment with the, with the, with the opposite hand, he also brings mercy. And as judgment comes, so does mercy. And more often than not, what we see in the character of God displayed throughout scripture is more often than not, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now there are times throughout scripture where judgment is real and, and, and he executes it. But more often than not, God is, is seen as a merciful God. And he brings judgment oftentimes in, in peculiar ways. And, and the best way that I know to illustrate this is, is I have uh, uh, kids at home and, and we have a stove in our house, uh, like, like most people have stoves. Now, if I were to, to tell my children, hey, listen, don't touch the stove, it's hot. That declaration, that command that I, that I make to my kids on, on not touching the stove is, is a judgment that's issued. It's issued in a, in a verbal warning or, or a verbal threat. If you touch the stove, you're going to get burned. And they have the opportunity and the choice on whether or not to touch the stove. And if they, they don't heed the warning or the judgment or the decree and they touch the stove, then they will experience firsthand, not just the warning of judgment, but they will experience the actual judgment in burning their hands. But rather... If they hear my judgment, don't touch the stove. And they heed it and respond in a way that they don't touch it. 
Then they therefore receive mercy. Because if I hadn't have warned them of the impending doom and the burn that would be afflicted in the stove and, and they just touched the stove, that wouldn't be a very merciful God that existed there. And so what we see in, in the moment, or a dad rather, and so what we see in the book of Jonah throughout the scriptures is God bringing about his judgment through these prophets and through these men and declaring judgment is coming. But all the while, we, we lean into the understanding that God is a merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in love, full of compassion. And it is his desire for these Ninevites not to experience his judgment, but rather to experience his redemption. And Jonah, the book of Jonah, teaches us a lot of things. And one of the things very specifically that it tells us is that God has a heart for those that are far from him. God's heart is deeply infatuated. He, he wants himself to receive the glory and we say yes to those things. And, and for some reason in, in his sovereignty, he has wrapped up his glory and his honor with men and women receiving the gift of salvation. That if we want to glorify the Father, we do that by exalting his son, Jesus, the name above every other name. And we do that as men and women full of the spirit of God, faithfully proclaiming the good news. And so when he says in verse nine, God may turn, he may relent, he, he may have be moved to pity because of this repentance that he will turn from his anger so that we may not perish. It says in verse 10, when God saw what they did, notice the mercy and the compassion of God, when he saw what they did and how they turned from their wickedness, from their evil way, it says God relented. He was moved to pity of the disaster that he said he would do to them and he did not do it. Friend, I wanna tell you this, God is still moved to pity for people. He is still full of compassion. In fact, it says elsewhere, he, he is rich in compassion, full of mercy. And I think that, that one of the things that, that Jonah 3 is, is doing in, in my own life and in my own heart is, is it's reminding me that God still desires to save those that are far from him. And there are two things that, that sort of come along with that, that, that I want us to, to know as we begin to conclude our time over these next few minutes. The first thing is just a simple reminder into the broader context of Jonah. If we go back to Jonah chapter two, verse nine, uh, it, we, we see that, that he says that I'm gonna, with a voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice. But notice at the end of verse nine, remember what he said. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, God gives mercy to those who respond to his judgment, to his word. Not mine, not yours, but salvation belongs to him. 
When you look back at, at verse eight, which I, I still to this day believe that verse eight is, is one of the primary points of the entire book. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of the steadfast love. And what Jonah is talking about is himself, how he has forsaken the cause and the glory of the Lord. And, and he is seeking in this moment to be extremely selfish about himself that he, he despised the people so much that he was unwilling to go to them with God's word, even though he was confident that, that there was a God and that, and that God had a message to deliver. He got caught up in, in vanity. He got caught up in himself. And he says, he comes to this conclusion that, that those who pay regard, they are forsaking the covenantal love of God. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But I also want you to notice this, and, and I don't want you to miss this in chapter three. I said earlier how the people of God, they, they hear Jonah's message, and it says in verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God, not Jonah. They did believe the messenger, but it was the message that Jonah was given by God. In other words, we see Paul echo this, and this is an important connection for us to make this morning, that faith comes by hearing the word of God. That the only way people can respond to the good news of Jesus is if they hear the word of God. And Jonah was delivering the word of God. God's word is his instrument to bring life to people by means of his spirit. God's word is what holds the truth for us. And faith, and we want to grow in our faith, but we want to receive faith. It has to come when we are confronted with the truth and the reality of the scripture. And then we receive it by faith. And so what do we do between now and then? Well, listen, our posture, if we believe that salvation belongs to the Lord, if we believe that faith responsiveness comes by hearing and being confronted with the word, then our goal first and foremost is to get the scripture, to get the word of God in the hands of every human being that exists within this earth. And that includes the people that live in our city that maybe they know the name of Jesus, but they've made the wrong assumptions about him. And it is to portray the word of God in accurate form with, with understanding of what God means in a right way. Because maybe it's true that the people in our city, they've heard the name Jesus, but they've made the wrong assumptions about him. But the second thing in response to getting the word into people's hands and confronting them with, with the scriptures and allowing the scriptures to, to do the work. It, it's God who saves. It's, it's the spirit who illumines. It's the spirit who draws people. Yes, we come to a place where we recognize and we make a decision, but, but wrapped up in that truth is the idea that no one comes to the, to the father except through the son unless the father draws them. We see this throughout scripture. But our posture as a people ought to be a people that are praying for those that are far from him. In fact, our prayers, what Jonah 3 teaches us is that our prayers and desires, asking God to save those who are lost, are not about us trying to overcome some sense of reluctance in God to save people, but rather have more to do with us laying hold and, and grasping God's willingness to save them. Because it's an understanding that God wants to save every tribe, nation, and tongue in this world. 
that God is willing. And our posture in prayer is to grab hold of that willingness, to grab hold of, of the names of the people in our city, of the people groups who have yet to hear and respond and to pray for them. First and foremost, this is our mission, to pray for the lost. And to see then God take hold of, of those prayers, not in a sense of reluctance, but, but in our posture of tapping into the willingness of God, believing that God wishes to save people and he is still saving people today. Salvation often follows presuming the compassion of God. God had compassion for the Ninevites and he wanted to see them saved. And Jonah went and he proclaimed but there's another step here that I'll conclude with. It's a very practical sense in, in what happens with the people of God. We, uh, we're coming to the realization that times have changed in our city. We no longer live in Jerusalem, but rather we, we feel like uh, increasingly we live in Babylon, in exile, in captivity, in a city that's not our own, in a, in a, in a city, in a place, in a state, in a country, in a world that, that is, is growing farther and farther away from the truth of God's word. And so what is our role to that? Well, listen, uh, the role is, yes, we want you to come to church and be active, but, but there's a next step here. And I wanna illustrate it by, by sharing an email with you that I got several weeks ago. I won't tell you who it's from. They've asked me to, to not say their name, but I wanna share to you what happened in the life of our church several weeks ago. I made a decision on Easter Sunday uh, to not preach a sermon uh, on five reasons why the resurrection is true. Uh, my, my mindset behind that was um, that, that a lot of people for the first time are coming to church or they're checking in for Easter and they typically will hear the same Easter message over and over and over again. And so I, I chose the prodigal son to sort of tap into the idea that perhaps there were going to be some, some people that were genuinely seeking they didn't wanna hear the same sermon that they've always heard. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but just simply this is where God led me. So I preached through the prodigal son and we had a member of our church that, that, that took that message and he gave it to some individuals that he worked closely with in, in his work. And he said, listen, listen to this sermon and, and I wanna talk to you about, about what happens in this sermon. And so uh, these guys listened to the sermon. He got the word of God into their hands as delivered by me. Uh, I know there were better communicators out there for that. And so they hear the message. He goes and sits with them in a, in a break room at the office and he begins to talk with them about the prodigal son. He begins to talk. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But there's a role that we play in sort of making the transition. He talks with them about what it means to be a prodigal and that eventually it leads him to the place where he asked them, why would you not want to receive this good news that God is giving? And, and, and lo and behold, guess what happens? Because he was faithful, because he believed that salvation belongs to God. They weren't rejecting him, they were rejecting God. And so it propelled this member to share with courage and, and with audacity and to be bold. And he led those men to come to know the Lord because they heard the word. Faith comes by hearing. This morning, I simply want to ask you a question that has, has gripped me for the past several weeks. If prayer is an important part of us seeing our friends and family come to know Christ, here's the question that we end with. If God were to answer your prayers over the past two weeks, no strings attached, no obligations. How many people that you have been praying for would be brought into the kingdom? 
If God just answered your prayer, if salvation belongs to him and the best way that we partner with God is just simply praying, God, not I will, but, but your will be done. Lord, we believe that you are a God of compassion and mercy and that you desire for those far from God to, to know you. If that is your desire, we really believe that, then we cry out that you would save this person or that person. If God answered those prayers in your life today, how many men and women would just be automatically brought into the kingdom? And if you're there and you go, I, I don't know that anyone would then let us begin today, this morning, as a family in our homes, let us begin praying for those of yet to receive him. Call out and beg to our gracious God by name that God would save him. And let's let our God do his work. Friend, if you are connecting with us for the first time and you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, we would love to visit with you about that. There's a way you can uh, leave your name and number in the comment section here. Uh, you can uh, fill out some information on our website uh, and reach out to one of our staff. We would love to visit with you, to talk with you about what that means to follow Jesus and to be in relationship with him. Church family, it, I, I'm praying for you. Um, I know that there are many obstacles coming your way personally. I know there are many obstacles facing uh, us as a city, as a state, as a country, and I wanna just continue to implore you to keep your eyes and your focus on Jesus for he is good. He is good. I love you and I'll see you again here next week.